0: So I'm sure you've you've noticed this uh, if you've been looking at your calendar uh, but on Wednesday it's going to mark 18 years since September 11th 2001 uh, 18 years and if you're old enough to remember uh, what what it was like uh, if you remember where you were and what you were feeling and thinking uh, I was running through the ACU campus center because I was about to be late to turn in a project to a professor, and so I wasn't, I wasn't slowing down much as I was, I was making my way through that campus center, and I just glanced at a, a TV that was there, and I saw a, a building on fire, and I assumed it was somewhere else. I didn't slow down to look, and I just kept going. And by the time I made it up to the the Bible department there at ACU, all of of the the folks around had gathered around another television set there, and within moments I realized, no, it wasn't someplace else; it was it was here. Uh, and just moments later, the second tower was was hit, and it's not like. I've ever thought of our world as being a perfect place. But in that moment, on that day, 18 years ago, it felt like the world broke. And that in fact, it was broken beyond repair. It seemed like there was more darkness than light, like there was more hatred than love. And it wasn't clear to me... ...how we were going to find a way forward. And I know that I wasn't the only one... ...having those kinds of thoughts and feelings that day. In fact, there were some people... ...who started to ask themselves... ...who's somebody who could speak to that feeling of despair? And they decided that maybe one of the best people... ...to get on television and talk a little bit about that... ...was Mr. Rogers he had just a few months earlier stopped filming his famous television show that he had worked on for years and years, and and he felt like it had had run its course, that he'd done it enough. But then he got to a place where he'd been asked if if he would film a couple of of promotional commercials to speak to people who, who were now afraid of the world they were living in. Now, I wasn't aware of these commercials 18 years ago, and in fact, only, only found out about them because last summer, there was a documentary about Mr. Rogers, and, and they talked about this, and they talked about the fact that when he was invited to film these promos, he, he didn't really want to do it because he didn't feel like he knew what to say either. And he he felt like even if he he figured out something that he could share with people, they weren't really in a place to hear it. Things felt that broken, even to him, and yet he he couldn't really say no. So we're going to watch a brief video this morning from that documentary, setting up what it was like for him to make that decision, and then one of the promotional commercials that he filmed. Let's watch this together now.
1: We decided to have Fred back to do some promos about 9-11. He was very troubled, and I said, Fred, what's wrong? And he said, I just don't know what good these are gonna do. And I just remember saying, Fred, how can you say that? When the horror of 9-11 really hit him, I, I think it was a real eye-opener. He was realizing that it was just so big. It's always gonna be an ongoing struggle to overcome evil. I remember thinking, okay, this is the time that you need to pump him up because he doesn't understand. These, this is really important. People listen to you.
0: Okay. No matter what
1: our particular job, especially in our world today,
0: we all are called to be tikkun olam, repairers of creation. Thank you for whatever you do, wherever you are, to bring joy and light and hope and faith and pardon and love to your neighbor and
1: to yourself.
0: And so he filmed several of these and all of them intersect with this idea of how do you respond to something as difficult to comprehend as 9-11? Well, he finds a way to say it's in small things you do in the course of your everyday life for other people, for your neighbor. And, and I want us to look at these words that he just said because I, I want you to, to see this phrase that he uses. Um, and so Nate, if you could pull up the quote now, he, he uses this word Tikkun Olam, he says that, that we're all called to do that. Whatever our roles are, whatever our job is, that's what we're called to do. That, that's the job description that God gives us, whether we know it or not. And And then he gives examples of things that you're able to do in whatever place you find yourself working. In the course of, of, of a normal, typical day for you, he says, this is what you really this is what, what you can help happen. And I, I find that to be such a, an interesting response to something as dark and difficult as 9-11. To say, you know what you do the next day? You, you get up and you go to work. And while you're there, you find ways to repair things. That, that somehow in doing what you've been asked to do. In, in accomplishing and completing tasks that you've been given you can help heal a world that sometimes feels like it's beyond repair. As dark as those moments were for all of us, and as dark as as the everyday moments continue to be, I mean, sadly, in the last 18 years, it's not as if watching the news has gotten any easier. We find this encouragement as people of faith to never decide that, that our world is broken beyond repair because we believe that That our world, it isn't beyond God's presence. And as long as God is present, this kind of healing can take place. That phrase, tikkun olam, is actually a a phrase that that belongs all the way back. It started being used by Jewish rabbis and theologians and ministers and teachers uh, starting all the way in the third century. And it was their way of trying to talk about whatever it is you do, whatever kind of work you do, and they're not talking about career. They're not talking just about work that you might do that you're you're paid for. They're talking about any kind of, of labor that you're involved in, any type of task that takes focus and effort. Any work that you do ultimately is a part of this work, this great work of repairing the world. There's a lot of places in Scripture where this idea is explored. But perhaps the clearest place, the best place, is Isaiah chapter 58. And So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and start turning there. This chapter is filled with images of a future that God's people are really struggling to understand because they've gone through their own version of 9-11 where their world has fallen apart and they don't know what to do next. They don't even know if there's anything they can do next. And Isaiah wants to give them a sense of what their calling is, even when they feel like there's nothing they can do that they know is going to work. He says, no, there's this destiny that we have as God's people, and we have forgotten it. And we're going to start reading together in verse 6. And it, it comes within the context of, of them thinking that the best way they, they might be able to put things together again is if they get worship right. And he says, well, if you want to worship, let me tell you the kind of worship I really want. So verse 6, isn't this the fast I choose, right? Isn't this the kind of worship I choose? Releasing wicked restraints, untying the ropes of a yoke, setting free the mistreated, and breaking every yoke. Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family? Then your light will break, break out like the dawn, and you will be healed quickly. Your own righteousness will walk before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry out for help, and God will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, that the, the finger-pointing, the wicked speech, if you open your heart to the hungry and provide abundantly for those who are afflicted, Your light will shine in the darkness, and your gloom will be like the noon. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and he will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairers of the breach, restorers of livable streets." Here we find that the prophet Isaiah poetically describing that destiny that he believes is still intact, even though there's so much brokenness and so much darkness in the lives of God's people. And he reminds them that God is inviting them to be a part of what he's always doing, what he's always working towards. This idea that God hasn't given up on the world And that in fact he's always working to fix every broken place and heal every broken soul. And he says to them, don't you want to be a part of that? Isn't that really what I'm I'm calling you to be and do? Not just to get your, your corporate moments of worship right. Whatever that means for them at any given moment. It's always changing it seems. But one thing that doesn't change is the kind of people our worship is supposed to be turning us into. And so he uses these two, these two names, right? Restorers of livable streets and, and repairers of the breach. And and as you look at those two titles, those two names, I, I want you to, to remember that Isaiah says. It's not that the Israelites, it's not that God's people are going to be the ones who decide that these are the, the new names that they're going to go by. These are the titles they're going to give themselves. That's not how it's supposed to work. right? You don't give yourself a title. A title is given to you. And, and can you imagine a better title that could be given to God's people than for the, the folks that are around them that are sharing life with them to look at how they're moving through this broken world of ours and saying, there's the people who can repair anything. There's the people who know how to restore this community that we call home. There they are. And we know this isn't just a promise for God's people a long time ago. It is a promise that is still alive and well for us today. And brothers and sisters, I can't imagine a better set of names, a a better pair of titles than these. And as we think about, okay, where does that take place? It's obvious that, that all of this is labor intensive and it takes focus and it takes effort and it takes strategy. It takes things that we typically call work. Eugene Peterson, who, who created the message paraphrase, uh, when he translates uh, verse 12 of, of chapter 58, he, he says, you'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community a place to call home again. All five of those underlined words, those are work words. Far more than they tend to sound like worship words. And yet God is wanting to hold those two aspects of our lives together to say that if you really want to find a way to please God and to bless your neighbors, get to work. Look at our world. Look at the places where you know things aren't the way they should be. Look at the relationships that you know are falling apart and get to work. It's, it's not just something we do. God says it's who we're supposed to be. And I I struggle with that at times because so often when I think about pleasing God, I think about getting it right in this room, in this place. And yet as I think about the work that that we're called to do here, while some of that's going to happen in the privacy of of our own homes or within the confines of, of a church property or building, the majority of that work is going to have to take place. If we're really going to do these things and be called by these names, the majority of that work is going to have to take place everywhere else we we spend our time in any given week. And for so many of us, that's going to be places and moments and experiences where we are called to work. Now, again, I want to remind you, we're not talking just about people who go to a a particular office and and work. We're we're talking about all kinds of work. So if you're a student, obviously that means you're primarily working at school and you're working possibly in practice or or a band hall or or any other uh, of the, the various types of activities that you're involved in that take effort. If you're somebody who who stays at home and helps to create a home for your family, I don't even want, I don't have time to go into all the various jobs that you do to make that happen, right? I I have a sense of that just from the times that I have partnered with Lauren in that, and I realize how hard that can be. It never ends, right? There's no way to get out of, of that kind of work. Maybe you're retired, and and you're at a place where you think about all of the years of, of work that you've already invested in your life and the lives of other people. But if, as long as you're still drawing breath, this is what God is calling us to give our lives to. So, all of us in this room, in one way or another, we're involved in work. And, and we've got to find a way to see that work the way God sees it. And that takes work to see it that way. It takes imagination. It takes takes conversation. It takes application. It takes a a bunch of different types of experiences. It takes reminders. It, It takes other people helping us understand that all work, all honest work, can and should become God's work To heal and repair the world, but we have to make the choice for our work to be a part of that greater work. But once we make that choice, we start to see it everywhere. We start to understand it in ways maybe we never understood it before. I know I I struggled with this myself uh, growing up, and part of it was because I had a certain worldview, right? I saw the world in a certain way, and I kind of saw it split into two major categories. One we'll call sacred and the other we'll call, we'll call secular, right? And sacred meant it either happened at church or for church or it was somehow otherwise clearly connected to the Christian faith. And anything that wasn't connected directly to church or a church program or, or an a obvious person that was doing things for, for Christianity's sake, we called that, I, I called that secular. And I had a really difficult time seeing God at work and God using the work of people while, while they or I, while we were in a secular space. I grew up in California. I went to a relatively large high school, about 5,000 students, and there were 22 kids in that high school that were in the Christian club. And we were the only 22 Christians we could find. I'm sure there were others that especially hid from me personally, but... The point is, they were we we were greatly outnumbered. Right? And so when I was at school, that was clear to me that was a secular space. I was there to, to keep my head down, focus on doing my, my homework and, and doing well academically and getting back home or getting back to youth group and, and church where it could I could really be myself because that was a sacred space. Okay, the the problem with that is that's not how God sees the world. God doesn't see the world broken up into two categories, one that, that we would say is clearly a place of God's presence, and one that isn't. Right? But we, we know this, but let's look at a couple of verses that'll remind us of this. Psalm 24 1, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live on it. Okay, so that that's pretty clear. Uh, an, another psalm, Psalm 139, uh, where the psalmist is trying to sing about just all the places that, that he believes God is present. And he says, look, if I, if I found a way to get all the way to the, the, as far as I can see in the sky, or if I drilled down as deep as I could possibly imagine in the earth, you would be those places. If, if I rose on the wings of the dawn and I settled on the far side of the sea, even there... Your presence is waiting for me. It's a beautiful song of comfort to believe that, that as God's child, we live in a world, in a, in a universe, where we can't possibly go that God isn't. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that the way God sees our world is that it is altogether sacred. Every single inch of creation is filled with God's goodness and presence. Now we resist it, we're blind to it, we push away from it, we don't partner with it. But that doesn't change the fact that God is present, seeking always to bring about the repair of the world, the restoration of our lives, the rebuilding of our communities. That this is the great work of God. And what that means is that whatever you're doing, There isn't any work that you or I ever do that isn't performed directly in God's presence. There there isn't any moment in your workday when God isn't pulling for you to see it. To understand that what you're doing is what he loves to do. Right from the very beginning of creation, God likes to get his hands dirty to do whatever he can to create space for other people, to, to give them a sense of what life is about and, and to help equip them with their basic needs. God is always busy doing every single day what it is he hopes we'll be doing, repairing the broken people and places in this world. And that's why for the next five weeks, we're gonna be focusing on what it means for us to be repairers of the world. What does it mean for us to make the decision to see? To use our our hope and our imagination that God really is present. That any kind of, of honest work that we're engaged in is kingdom work. I know it takes effort and focus to see it that way, but God wants us to understand that what you do To help other people in any form is putting the broken pieces of this this life that we share back together again. And I know it takes some work. When I decided that I wanted to, to finally be a preacher, and by the way, I think part of the reason I decided to be a preacher was not just because my dad was a preacher. It's because somewhere along the way I decided this is the only line of work I can go into and be sure that I'm pleasing God. You know, I I thought about being other things, not that I would have been good at any other thing, but at some point I really, really wanted to be an architect, and then I found out there was a lot of math involved, apparently, and I was out, right? But I had other dreams of what I was going to do with my life, but I I got to the place where I decided, okay, I really want to be safe, and I want to make sure that what I'm doing pleases God, so I'm going to go into full-time professional ministry. And my dad said, please do something else. And he had reasons for it. It wasn't, it was just, I think, nervous about how, how big of a decision it was and how quickly I seemed to make it. But I think I did it because I thought this is, this is it, this is what I need to do. And so he said, okay, well, if you're going to do that, you know, you're going to preach for people who don't preach, son. And so you, you probably need to do a different kind of job, at least a little bit in the summers uh, while, while you're going to school so that you can at least sound like you're normal when it comes to work, when you talk to your church. And I've been thinking about that conversation a lot <laughs> the last few weeks, because I thought, I don't know that this actually was effective, Dad. But there are two jobs that stand out to me. One, I, I worked with one of the elders from our church. He, his, his, he had this small business. He drove around to all of these small used car lots, and he, he did touch-up paint on used cars. So for a summer, that's all I did with him, All day long, like 10-hour days, we'd start before the sun came up. We'd be going long after I wanted to be there. I was inhaling all kinds of of chemical fumes. I had a headache half the time. I didn't like the work. And I kept thinking, man, I made a good decision to go into preaching, right? I kept telling me, at least I won't have to spray paint anybody's cars. guy's name was Al. He loved it. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. He loved it. Right? Then another summer, I worked at uh, as a, an administrative assistant in an engineering firm. Uh, my mom worked at this firm, and so she pulled some strings and got me, you know, I answered the phones and got coffee and made copies and all that kind of stuff. And it was a little better because it was indoors and there was air conditioning and all that, but, you know, it, it was kind of hard to stay mentally engaged in a job like that when I was wanting to do other things and distracted and all of that. And so I thought, man, yeah, I don't know. This, this, there's just a lot of repeated tasks in this, th- this job. I don't, I, I don't think I would want to do something like this. I mean, it was like I was trying out jobs to figure out why they were bad so I could make myself feel better about, you know, being a preacher. Well, here's the thing. When I look back at both of those jobs, as much as they weren't exactly a perfect fit for me, especially as a, as a young man who, who thought I was going to you know grow up and change the world or something. I couldn't see how I was going to do that through paint. I look back, and I, there were all kinds of conversations that I had with, with those car dealer either the dealers themselves or employees, who if Al got just a little far enough away from me, they would immediately start to tell me what an incredible guy he was and how they looked forward to him coming by and, and how they would talk with him about real things. Right, about their families and about their struggles and how when he asked them how they were doing, they knew he really cared. And, and even in California, right, where they weren't gonna, he, he wasn't on his own gonna bring up as comfortably as any of us might, might do here. He wasn't gonna bring up his faith. He wasn't gonna talk about Jesus directly to them. They all knew that Al went to church. They knew where he went to church and there were various ones of these. I had one guy I remember saying to me, I don't even know if prayer works, but if it does, I want Al to be the one saying it for me right? And I think about my mom. You know that no one ever said this, this stuff about my mom to me while she was standing there. But it was this engineering firm where everybody kept to themselves and everybody was, was working on different projects. And my mother was somebody in that place that created a sense of family and belonging for all of them. And they talked about how, how good of a listener she was to them and how much she cared about everything that was going on in their lives. And, and it wasn't like my mom had permission to, to lead a you know, a, a Bible study in, in, the, in the lunchroom. But they knew. They knew who she was, and they knew what kind of work she was really trying to do in the midst of all of the other things that, that her job required her to do. I look back, and I see both of those, those jobs, and I realize that when I was in the middle of it, I didn't see it because I didn't know how. And, and I don't know what kind of work you do, I don't know how meaningful it feels to you, but over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at various types of jobs, none of which are are going to scream to you, um, this is easy for the person to decide that it's ministry, right? But they they have to think through, just like you do, how to make what it is they're doing a part of God's work, a part of what God is doing. And I'm looking forward to, to you getting to hear from other people than me, because let's face it, a couple of summer jobs doesn't doesn't really give me the place, the standing to tell you, this is what I would try to do to see a deeper sense of meaning in your daily work. But these people who are going to share with you, who we're going to hear from, I I pray and hope that they help you do that. I want to leave this thought with you. We've talked about it some, but this is specifically what I want you to live with this week, right? When we look at our world and we see all the ways that it's, it's broken, we see all the people... In all the places. God doesn't want us to see all that and decide that we're defeated before we begin. He doesn't want us to see all that and give up. He wants us to see the brokenness in our world roll up our sleeves and get to work. Whatever that work may be, it can be a part of God's greater work among us. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be out in our lobby, outside all of these, these major exit doors. They, they want to be there to pray for you, to walk beside you. So if there's anything this morning you came that you want to pray about or talk about, if you want to learn more about what it would mean uh, to make the kind of commitment that Wesley made this morning, uh, we want to visit with you and pray with you, so go to them as together we stand and sing.